You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. Uh, it is November 17th, 2022. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. This is I Love You Keep Going. And I thought that I would talk about um, how practice really develops. It's been one of the things that has been interesting to me uh, recently. Um, we start our practice uh, in the beginning, uh, depending on uh, where you go and who you ask, they offer, particularly in meditation, a, a series of different strategies that you might use. Um, and I think that uh, really, in a, particularly in the way that in, in the West, uh, we've secularized everything, it's hard to trace back what the origins of the practice are that are being offered, uh, particularly if it's uh, completely in secular terms and there's no uh, ongoing reference to the, the source material where it came from. When I um, came to LA in 92 and started to practice uh, Vipassana, it was in the uh, Teknat Han uh, school, and it started with a basic breath counting concentration practice, which I still uh, teach quite a bit of. Um, the idea then is to develop uh, a level of uh, concentration, which is called access concentration, which isn't uh, jhana, but it's uh, adjacent to jhana practice and also insight practice. Jhana is a, a word that means high concentration states. Uh, depending on the lineage, of course, in Theravada, jhana practice is something that, that's praiseworthy and, and uh, encouraged. Um, but in uh, Tibetan practice, for instance, it, it's, it's generally referred to as a dead end and not worth the time to practice. Once you have access concentration, that's sufficient, and you should then go into a path. Um, there's five main traditions in Tibetan practice, and each of them have a path that you would follow. Uh, in the, the Teknat Han uh, uh, group that I was originally learning from, there wasn't a particular model or path that they were teaching. Uh, it was really uh, the relationship to the teacher and the teacher uh, understanding the, the descriptions of the practice that you gave and then recommending the next uh, step. Um, so that's uh, about 30 years ago. Um, and I was not a, a particularly trusting person 30 years ago. It, it would be fair to say that my uh, uh, capacity for epistemic trust was completely shattered. So epistemic trust means that you trust that the person is telling you the truth and you trust that the reason that they're telling you what they're telling you is because it's meant to be helpful to you. And in the childhood uh, experiences that I had, neither one of those things were true very often. And so uh, 
children rely on their caregivers for survival and they really accept in a kind of blind way whatever is being offered to them uh, epistemic trust uh, is this idea in the child parent relationship where the you think that the that you're you have good parents and that their interest is actually in your development and you doing well when you hit adolescence or puberty, really, there's a dramatic change in the brain where the, the child's brain, which is just this collection of unconnected axions uh, that just can connect really quickly and, uh, to any information that's coming in, so you can really sop up information that it's coming in, is radically pruned back. So all of the, all of the axions that are not connected are pruned back the barest scaffolding of connected things which gives you a huge cognitive boost a huge capacity uh, a greater capacity to think and it's at that time that you can then reflect on the childhood conditions that you had and evaluate whether or not you think that you were told the truth and you can evaluate whether you think that the reason what was said to you was meant to be in your interest or was actually in the service of your caregiver's interest uh, if you make the decision that, that you were told the truth and that it was in your interest then you can shift out of that uh, parental uh, authoritarian uh, or authoritative uh, or permissive role those are the main ones into a kind of mentor coach role with your caregivers where they they actually help you navigate through uh, adolescents, they help you navigate through youth until you can find the direction that you're going in. And if that doesn't happen, then the epistemic trust shatters and you, you uh, have a hard time believing what people tell you and you have a hard time trusting the motivation for why they're telling you what you're uh, being told. And so I found coming out of my own childhood uh, conditioning that um, I really didn't trust anybody, and certainly not their motivations. <laughs> uh, I had a kind of wait and see attitude about what people said to me. Uh, Christian, <clears throat> I, I guess you kind of just answered it, but I was I was curious how you actually learn new things if you had such a sort of basic distrust for. Like the words of others like it makes me think of sort of not not to accuse you but like it makes me kind of think of like people that are into like conspiracy theories will not take information from certain sources but they'll readily take information from other sources in a way that maybe there's a pattern to it i don't know shakuse <laughs> Well, I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to think back to like I probably had some issues with epistemic trust, and I'm trying to imagine what my process for learning stuff was in in that kind of that kind of mindset. Um, it's an interesting thing uh, about conspiracy and conspiracy theories. Um, mm. 
I think that, and, and actually to connecting, connecting it to uh, a, a breaking of epistemic trust is probably a good idea. You, you don't trust authority to tell you the truth. And, and uh, if it's really broken, you suspect the, the, the reason that they're telling you what they're telling you. Um, uh, it, one of the great things about propaganda and to understand the nature of propaganda is that you always take something that's true and easily provable, and then you tie it to something that's not true. But because uh, the truth aspect is easy to prove as true, uh, you can uh, easily uh, then um, begin to believe the thing that isn't true because it's associated with something that's true. Uh, it's the nature of propaganda and people are good at it, uh, uh, use it. In interpersonal relationships, we tend to call it gaslighting. I don't know if you know the term that you, you do try to adjust somebody's uh, point of view more in line with what you want from them by that process of offering up something that's true and then just slipping in right behind it something that isn't true. Um, when you're unable to reflect on your, um, on your own situation and take responsibility for the the choices that you made, uh, it's very easy to begin a process of externalizing the responsibility to someone else. It's called projective identification in Western psychology. You, uh, the, the conflict that you have internally that you can't cope with, you project out onto other people as an explanation. And, um, it relieves the, 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 difficulty momentarily, uh, which is actually what we're all going for in, in those situations. Uh, the momentary relief is worth it, uh, even if there's a long-term uh, negative consequence to it. It's, it's actually um, um, the whole addiction process as well. The level of pain is too much. You need relief from the pain. Uh, you find something, either process or substance, that relieves the pain. Uh, and even though you don't deal with the underlying source of the pain, in that moment you have relief and that it seems worth it because you kick the consequences down the road and don't consider them as part of the equation, whereas somebody who is not at that level of pain <clears throat> can more easily... Uh, uh, do the sums and see that those kinds of decisions actually have consequences that make the current situation worse uh, going forward and so are likely to lead to more pain and then uh, turn toward the experience of the present moment and attempt to address the issues that are happening in the present moment. Uh, the further uh, away from dealing with the conditions of the present moment, you get the more fantastic uh, the explanations can get. Um, on the other hand, um, sometimes fantastic explanations are, are not so far off which is the, the problem of the true thing being married to the thing that isn't true. 
but you see then the value of epistemic trust. Do you have uh, in your life and are you are in relationship to people who you believe what they're saying to you? Or do you have some doubt about what they're saying to you? When you're forming that inner circle, people that are closest to you, uh, you really want them to be uh, people that you can have epistemic trust with, that you can believe without having to worry about it. And usually the way that that's demonstrated is they say something uh, and they do that, and uh, it turns out to be true time and time and time again, so that you can begin to rely on them. And then whose interest is uh, it that they're uh, talking to you about? So something to pay attention to. Most of the time I find that the, the great uh, conspiracies in our culture are not hidden at all because they don't need to hide them. They just do them. Uh, and uh, the truth of the powerlessness of, of that is what the rest of us find so painful. Uh, and one of the reasons why we have a harder time looking at it. Um, I, as an example, um, housing. Um, it costs four or five times the amount of money to keep people homeless on the street than it does to house them. Wouldn't you think that in a society that keeps saying that there's no money to do this would just admit that it costs four times as much to keep them on the street and if it was just about the money that we would house them but what's actually uh, true is that it, it is about the money and that's a lot of money that that can be made on keeping uh, people on the street does that make sense now you say how can it possibly cost that much to let people live on the street um, we have a, in uh, in los angeles uh, a list of uh, uh, people who are super users of resources if you have uh, an, uh, a medical event that needs to be treated uh, then they have to send the ambulance they have to send the fire department in los angeles often it's the fire department that comes for medical service we also have private ambulances uh, the police often have to get involved then there's the hospital visit that um, most people on the street don't have insurance so the hospitals are mandated to provide emergency care, whether or not the person can pay for it or not. But if they can't pay for it, they bill the county. This is all taxpayer money, right? Um, so one of those events could cost thirteen or fifteen thousand uh, dollars, not including uh, aftercare. And then if you have two or three events, suddenly you're at 45,000 in a month, right? That's a lot of money. So um, back to practice. <laughs> Hopefully a cheerier subject. <laughs> Um, so 
one of the things that happens, I think, early in practice, or at least did to me and quite a few people I've talked to, um, is that because the epistemic trust isn't there, it's very hard to form a relationship with a teacher who you can uh, rely on and actually accept the uh, explanations that they're offering or the direction that they're offering. Um, <clears throat> and so what you have is uh, or, uh, these initial contacts or brief contacts with teachers and then uh, a separation and then a long period of uh, what we call Dharma orphanhood, uh, where they're, they're, you're a student, uh, which is essentially an autodidact situation where you're teaching yourself how to do it without much contact or direction from somebody who's further along in the path. Uh, certainly since the explosion of, of, uh, of online forums and so on, uh, uh, often when I uh, get into a Reddit or uh, one of the other ones, um, it feels like uh, a whole collection of Dharma or orphans giving each other uh, uh, epistemically broken <laughs> advice. <laughs> And then uh, trying again with the teacher, but because, uh, you know, uh, people with broken epistemic trust create these sort of hazards for their teachers to get through, you know, like these, these obstacle courses for their teachers to get through all of these setups one after another to see whether they're, they, they'll fail you or not so that you can rely on them. And uh, it, it's a, in some sense, when you reflect, or at least when I reflect back on my own history with teachers it's uh it's kind of funny how uh the the tests are so elaborate and how poorly people do a when they don't know they're being tested and uh, two when the tests are really uh, impossible um, and that that was true all all the way up until i met shinzen and he he was unfailingly kind but also unwilling to engage in any of it so that he managed to 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 uh, be somebody that i could learn from and so i think that in particularly if you're on the end of practice where you've had a lot of suffering a lot of difficulty and you're coming into practice uh, uh it's hard to rely on uh, somebody, a teacher in particular. Uh, the, and in the beginning, the Tibetan path was not at all possible for me because it's a it's a guru oriented practice and you have to really pick a teacher and and uh, and uh, um, conform to their advice uh, for you. But Shinzen, uh, you know, 30 years ago was um, or maybe 25 years ago uh, when we met, uh, was um, still talking about Mahasi uh, and hadn't quite formulated his five ways in the way. And Mahasi has a, has a path which is called the Progress of Insight. It's, uh, they um, published that, a translation of that called the Manual of Insight, it's, which is all sort of laid out there. Shinzen, of course, rejected somewhere along the way maps altogether, and uh, and so his his uh, um, method is uh, again based on the the interaction of the student with the teacher to be directed forward. And I think because my orientation was so, um, <clears throat> I need to be able to do this on my own because the likelihood of being failed by the teacher is so high that it. 
not worth investing. So a really insecure, insecurely attached point of view about the nature of relationships. And so the map uh, was very useful to me. But then uh, as you do the practice, as you say, develop access concentration and then uh, move into Vipassana, you begin to see the nature of your conditioning and how it affects the way that you create the reality that you experience. I think that's one of the things that we really want to know is um, what am I making? Um, I think in the beginning, of course, uh, of practice, my point of view was that I was experiencing things in a fairly realistic way, that my understanding of what was happening and the way that the world was, was actually not so far off. Um, not much sense at all that I created in each moment the experience that I was having uh, in the sense of defining it and uh, uh, and those definitions creating the meaningfulness of it. So you have the capacity to sense something, the object that can be sensed when there's contact, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which is unattached, unfixated, undifferentiated. Uh, it's uh, evaluated unconsciously for uh, Vedna or... Uh, um, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is often how it's described. I would, I tend to think of, is it urgent? Do you need to get to it now? Does it not matter whether you get to it? Uh, is there time for something pleasant? That's, that's kind of how I think about it. Then uh, whatever sensing experience that is, is compared to the perceptual database. If there's an entry in the perceptual database that's close enough, that thread of meaning attaches to the present moment and it unfolds into conceptual reality. That is, you fixate reality based on the, the conditioned meaning that you've associated, which is about pattern recognition, really. You recognize uh, the pattern of the present moment, you associate it with previous patterns, which gives you a leg up because you have the history of what to do in those previous pattern situations. You have uh, a memory of the outcomes of those so that you can pick your response uh, in line with the kind of outcome that you want to have in that situation. Make sense? Uh, and then you take in the outcome of that moment and it's attached to that thread. So the new outcome is attached to the, all the previous outcomes in that thread of understanding. If you come into a novel situation that you don't find an entry in your database that maps onto it closely enough, then the imagination kicks in and begins to assemble a response to it. And then you take an action and uh, that novel experience becomes remembered as an outcome in, and you've essentially begun a new thread of uh, uh, conditioning karmic thread is the term. Is that making sense? When you uh, begin to practice uh, at a depth where you can see these uh, experiences unfolding moment by moment, 
and you have enough clarity that you can recognize the attach uh, the uh, attaching of meaning to the undifferentiated sensing experience and the rolling out of conceptual reality, then you can begin to understand that you really create conceptual reality uh, in the way that you define it, not in the way that it is. This is very different than Westerners have been trained to think about this. Uh, Arist going back to Aristotle, um, who whose opinion was that we uh, take in the experience that's outside of us and create in, an, inside, an inner working model of what's happening. And that that model that we take inside and create is largely accurate. And so in the West, it's, uh, it's very common for people to say that they know what's happening because they have the experience of that happening is very different than uh, the, the Eastern and Buddhist view where you take in the data, you form reality, and then you project reality out, and you live in the projection of reality, whereas in the West, we really think we take in what's there, create a working model internally, and then operate from that accurate representation of what's there. Epicurus, who came along a, a few centuries later, modified it slightly by saying, if you have a strong emotional uh, experience while something is happening, it can distort the perception, but it's largely still an accurate perception of what's happening. When we begin to uh, see through the conditioned responses, and we begin to see the limits that uh, uh, conditioning can impose on our capacity to imagine alternatives and begin to open more directly into the experience of what's happening uh, in the present moment. <clears throat> we uh, also open up the possibility of, of defining it differently in the moment and uh, changing our response to it. Uh, in each moment what opens up in front of you is all of the possible choices that you could take in the moment and then as soon as you pick one as soon as you fixate reality all of the <clears throat> variations all of the choices except for the one that you pick disappear and then in the next moment all of the possibilities that are linked to the choice that you just made open up so in some sense, in each moment, as you uh, fixate it into conceptual reality, you uh, uh, then also choose the possibilities of the next moment. And then and you flow through this series of creations of the present moment in that way. Um, When we begin to abandon the, uh, the conditioning that we've had and we begin to imagine alternatives uh, and we begin to choose differently than we did in the past, it's not that robust uh, of, a, of a change in direction. It's easy to fall back into the, the samsara, the ruts, uh, the cartwheel ruts 
that we're used to. And it's only in this pushing into the experience uh, uh, of a more sensitive and more accurate understanding of what's happening and how we define the experiences that we have that we can begin to consistently choose uh, something that isn't been so deeply conditioned. Um, but it doesn't have much of a sense of resilience, as I said, or, or reliability in that sense. It's easy to fall out of that. But the more you do it, of course, the breadth of the, uh, of the, the experience uh, or the, the, the uh, depth of the database increases. So um, those new threads, which are very short in the beginning, get longer the more you use them, and there's, there's more vibrancy to them. And so uh, because the body-mind is such an economical system, if you pick a new path that actually is a better use of energy, uh, it tends to uh, head in that direction. And then as the database grows about variations of response to different circumstances, uh, it becomes more and more robust. That's really this process of change. Uh, if you wanted to describe it in a, just a neuroanatomy, uh, when you begin a, a new uh, direction, a new thought process, it's, it's, a, it's just a sliver, uh, a hair's width of nervous nerve tissue that's forming to create that, those con connections. But the more you use it, the more robust it gets, the more developed it gets. The things that you've been using as a habit are like a tree trunk to this uh, tiny little vein of a new uh, neural material, but then the more that you use it, the more robust it gets. And when it gets robust enough to be competitive to the old habit, uh, and it's more economical, the body just naturally shifts into it and, they, and, and you drop the old habit. And then eventually, uh, if you don't use it enough, it's actually pruned back to the point where it, it, it isn't an option anymore. So you've, in some sense, uh, permanently changed it in this, <laughs> not disregarding impermanence as the, the nature of everything. Is that making sense? So then what you find uh, is that you simply are reacting differently than you used to react to the conditions uh, that you face even though the self-experience is largely the same. This is one of those conundrums. The, the, that sense of how you know yourself uh, is unfazed by the fact that you're choosing things that you never would have picked before because the self-experience is not actually the thing that's doing the choosing. That's not what's changing. What's changing is the perceptual database and when the data there is different and you in that moment of association and creating uh, the meaning of what this present moment experience is happens, the self is still not involved in all of that. It's when you manifest it into conceptual reality that then the self is able to reflect on it. 
but you've already chosen it completely different. So the experience of the self viewing that unfolding of the meaning that you're uh, giving uh, reality is still the same watching sensibility. Is that making sense? Um, so what we're really looking for is not so much that the self-experience is different, but that you're doing things differently. That's uh, one uh, way of assessing the, 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 the way that the practice is working. And the more you do things differently, of course, the more robust the change is until the change is just the new way in which you operate in the world, which the self just simply accepts as this is how it is now without really much reference to the past sense of self. Peter? So, George, then after, if I'm following you correctly, we're able to see the threads of how these patterns are created and able to respond differently in a given situation. And the self is able to kind of see that unfold and see it. When does the non-identification come in and what didn't, you know, non-self when, I mean, is that, is that the next kind of logical step in this seeing a different outcome or how does that arise that understanding? Well, I think that, um, When we say that uh, there's no self, we don't mean that there's no self-experience. We mean that there's no ongoing condition, uh, ongoing, continuous, constant self-experience. What we mean is the self-experience arises based on sensory uh, conditions in each moment and that it comes and goes just like all sensing experience comes and goes. Um, you do have a self-experience and actually it's quite useful as a organizing principle. It's quite useful in uh, relating to other people and relating to the world. Um, and you wanna have a brilliant capable sense of self which doesn't, uh, which sees the, the nature of the self-experience and so it does not need to be defended. You don't need to defend your sense of self because it comes and goes. Uh, it's not substantial in that way. Um, years ago, uh, Shinzen was uh, on uh, the Red Road. Do you know the Red Road? Some of the indigenous practices, uh, one of which was a sweat lodge. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone into a sweat lodge, but um, when I when I was new to the practice and new to Shinzen's world, we would go up to a, a sweat lodge in Malibu, which was on the Wright's property, the grandchild of Frank Lloyd Wright, this property. Uh, and it was, it was quite lovely. There was a pond and sort of a, a half-built Frank Lloyd Wright mansion and, and then this uh, a nippy sweat lodge. Uh, and I remember with such satisfaction um, going into the sweat lodge uh, and and sitting there and just watching the self give up after the first few minutes of the heat just was completely gone. Uh, and then as my practice deepened, it became more and more tenacious until there was no amount of heat that they could throw in there, no amount of steam that would get 
the uh, self-experience to collapse. And so, uh, paradoxically, the the deeper my meditation practice uh, became, the greater my equanimity with uh, unpleasant circumstances became, the more tenacious my self-experience was. So, uh, uh, paradoxically, the greater the suffering was <laughs> with the extreme conditions of the sweat lodge because the self uh, you know, held on to its its position, and you may begin to notice that. The self-experience comes and goes, and each time the self-experience arises, it arises based on the conditions of the present moment, not the same self arising each time, or continuously witnessing. Christian? And you're differentiating that experience of the self being defeated from just like dissociation? No, I don't think it was dissociation because I dropped down into a place of just being, uh, which um, you might call it an equanimous, a deeply equanimous state, but without the self. So everything was pretty undifferentiated, unfixated. Uh, I had been practicing in sweat lodges for years uh, prior to that, but it was always this arduous experience I, there's a uh, a phrase uh, or a, it's called we, we would say i really had to suck dirt in that uh, sweat lodge which means that you literally put your face against the earth uh, and to, to have the earth cool the air as you breathe in because it, it's so hot um, and that at, at that time of course was much younger and um, you know, you look at me now, but there was a certain amount of machismo that we had when we went into the sweat lodge where it didn't matter if we'd passed out or not. We weren't leaving. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'd even go into one now, but that's how it is. Uh... <sighs> One of the reasons why meditation is such an effective way to, to work with this stuff is it, it operates in the perceptual database more than it does in the sense of self. You're not really changing your sense of self so much as seeing the nature of that self-experience, which is that it comes and goes, and it's based on the conditions of the present moment, uh, and uh, that uh, most of the time, the way that you make the self at world uh, precedes the self-experience arising. You're not operating from the sense of self. You're not making decisions from the sense of self. You're just observing what you do from the sense of self. Uh, oh, this is what I'm doing now. This is what I'm doing now. I wonder why I'm doing this. <laughs> I wonder why I decided this is how it was, is, is a sort of easier way of holding it. Wait a minute. This doesn't seem right. Let me remake the experience of conceptual reality in this moment. I'm feeling very threatened. I'm feeling very angry. I'm feeling that I need to defend my experience of the sense of self. Let me just drop that and reform the sense of self, which then is curious about what the conditions are that would, would have led me to form the experience in that way. Christian? Then isn't it a really different 
quality of experience to be watching your sense of self, like you're, you're, you're separate from it, right? Than to be sort of inside of it and not, not sort of have that remove where you're just, you're just in it, you're just in the forest, right? So, right. So the, that would be the, the, the a statement of identification. When you're totally identified with the sense of self, you think that it's real and that the way that the world appears to you is real. So you just act from that. Is that like a loss of mentalizing? Would yeah, you say? I would say. But when you're not, uh, and you you see it as just a sensing activity, like any other sensing activity, then there and you can maintain that curiosity as to why, in this moment, you're creating that self experience, uh, re reacting to that uh, world experience. Uh, and knowing that you've actually created that and you can recreate it differently uh, if you need to. You're not obligated to the initial pass on uh, the reality that you create. You're not obligated to the initial self-experience that you create. They change anyway in each moment if you pay, if you pay attention. Everything is arising and passing. Nothing is not arising and passing. Um, so why don't we do a little uh, meditation practice? Um, I think that uh, one of the ways to see this is to, to do the um, Investigating self-generated emotion technique. A lot of the times in uh, meditation circles, the, the you're, you're taught meditation techniques, uh, and then in conversation with the teacher, uh, or according to the map, you uh, develop uh, the investigation that you're going to do. Um, in this particular strategy, what I, what I want you to begin to do is to monitor your thought process. Uh, we're looking for uh, when the mind is quiet, there's no thinking going on. When the mind is engaged in one-off thoughts, which are usually related to the present moment, and when the mind is engaged in a repetitive thought. So, if you're ruminating about the past, it's usually some memory that's circulating. If you're ruminating about the future, uh, it's either planning or fantasy, something like that. And so what we're doing in this meditation is simply tracking that. Uh, we're gonna start with auditory space, uh, track visual space, and also track emotion in the body. Lucy is saying that she would rather do metta practice, but too bad. <laughs> We're doing Vipassana tonight. We've done metta for weeks. All right. So how did that go? I found it to be semi more difficult than other noting techniques that I've used in the past. 
um, semi? Yeah, normally the noting that I use is kind of like going through the three Satipatthanas of just like thought, feeling, sensation, kind of body, and then moving into pleasant, like feeling tone, and then mindfulness of mind, if there's craving or aversion around that or whatever is the nature of the distractions coming up. That's how I tend to note, as opposed to just only noting if there's something that's distracting you as opposed to consistently noting if there's rest. Uh huh. Yeah. I found that to be, I guess, count. It was difficult for me to just continually note rest, 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 rest. But you did it anyway. Yes. Good <laughs> epistemic trust. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And did you notice the body ever getting into re a repetitive thought? Yes. And were you able to track the emotion of that? Mm-hmm. Good. There's a part two to this. So we'll do that next time. Great. But not on Thanksgiving, which is next Thursday. Mm-hmm. Happy turkey. The week after. Happy uh, butternut squash. <laughs> mm -hmm. Christian? I noticed that I can be, like I can be totally aware of the theme or the story before I ever hear a single word of it, which I find kind of interesting. Like I don't quite know how that works. I was trying to, sort of investigate that but well if you're really concentrated in auditory space the cognition of the clear talk usually precedes it and if you're concentrated enough you just know the thought without it ever breaking out into clear talk so uh, that that would be good enough hmm. yeah I, I guess that's what it was happening. I was trying to figure out if I was just really not concentrated and not paying attention to the clear talk or if. No, it's usually the opposite of that. The, the cognition of the thought uh, arises. And then if you if you don't pay attention, the mind speaks it out loud. It's one way to look at it, to get your attention. Okay. Cause sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder like, am I, I would think that being a musician would train me to be an auditory thinker. But I, sometimes it seems like I'm I'm not, I'm neither an auditory nor a visual thinker. Like I'm just not a thinker. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like somehow stuff is here and I don't know where it comes from, but I don't know if that's just me not paying enough attention or what. Um, you know, some uh, music people are visual, synesthesia, no doubt. Uh, my favorite conductor says he conducts colors. He doesn't conduct sound. Um, but uh, more clarity is needed. So practice this more until you can really see what's happening. All right. So thank you for your practice. Really appreciate it. Uh, I have decided that I'm too old to continue doing day longs. And so I'm switching 
the format of level one to half days. So we're going to go from three day longs to four half days on the uh, level one. So the the uh, if you haven't done a level one in a while or you haven't done it, we're going to do uh, in uh, January, I think, the next um, level one in the new format. I'm looking forward to that. Um, we have a level two starting, uh, I think, in March. Uh, there's going to be another uh, EU. Uh, the last of the of the current level one EU is happening on Saturday, and then we're going to do another uh, level one in um, EU in April. Uh, and I'm doing an, a, a, a short retreat in Utrecht in June, which is in the Netherlands. So far, that's taking us, I think, far enough into the future. Uh, really uh, appreciate your practice. I offer the teachings on a Donna basis. That means I offer the offer the teachings freely, and then uh, uh, we hope that you'll make a donation to Metagroup. It helps support me and also the work Metagroup is doing. There's a link on the website to do that. Any amount is helpful. We really appreciate that. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you soon, I hope. Uh, enjoy your Thanksgiving. So back in two weeks. Bye.